6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 50 and 51. Last time we had uh, uh, those chapters, a uh, handful of chapters there on the uh, prophecies by Jeremiah against the, you know, these various um, traditional enemies of Israel, and we just we just plotted through that. Each one of those nations could be a study in itself, but uh, now we're going to go through uh, two chapters, fifty and fifty-one, that take a very very special subject, a subject that's very significant to you and I. And so we'll start this little escapade. Well, I should point out a couple of things. There are two chapters in the Old Testament on Babylon, namely Jeremiah 50 and 51. They're not the only chapters. There's a lot on Babylon, but they're two prophetic chapters. There's also two chapters in the New Testament, Revelation, chapters 17 and 18. And the two passages uh, will lead us to some questions that we'll try to deal with. Not conclusively, perhaps, but enough to... Uh, stimulate you to do your own digging. And by the way, that starts the first note for the evening. At the upper right-hand corner of your notepad, you put Acts 17.11, where Luke, in his two-volume gospel, Luke Luke being the volume one and Acts being volume two of the trial documents in defense of Paul at Rome. But anyway, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, Luke reminds you not to believe anything Chuck Missler tells you. But speaking of the Bereans, says that they uh, receive the Scriptures all readiness of mind, but search the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. And uh, tonight will be one of those evenings where you're going to be exposed to some ideas that are controversial, and, and you'll have to sort through that yourself. We're going to be dealing tonight with the city of Babylon, a strange city, a city that finds itself, of all places, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, in a sense. It's alluded to three times there. In effect, the deportation of Judah to Babylon is alluded there. So there's this event in that uh, we've been dealing with through the 49 chapters of Jeremiah, the whole idea of Babylon and it, and taking and specifically taking Judah into captivity is a major milestone in uh, God's timeline, not only for Israel, but for you and I. And so uh, it might be kind of fun to start where it began, in Genesis 10. So you might turn with me. I realize all of you, I'm sure, have diligently studied the Genesis tapes. So this is by way of very brief review, very superficial review. But still, it's a good place to begin. Genesis 10, okay, deals with Noah's family. The previous chapters had the flood and the ark and all of that, and uh, they uh, land and start the new beginning, and uh, Genesis 10 describes Noah, his family, and offspring. Genesis 10 is sometimes called the table of nations, because in Genesis chapter 10 we have many of the ancient names that become tribal names 
for some of the principal races, in fact, all of the principal races on the planet Earth. And these tribal names become very useful to us as we go through the Old Testament because many of these peoples are mentioned by those names. But in the middle of this table of nations, as it's sometimes called, we have a narrative or two sort of uh, alluded to, very superficially, very in a very summary form. Uh, there's, it's very, very shadowy references here. We get to um, verse 6, the sons of Ham. We have Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Sons of Ham was Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Well, Cush, we're going to follow up in a minute. Mitzrayim is, is, is uh, excuse me, is Egypt. But we get down to verse eight. It says Cush begot another character by the name of Nimrod. Now you may have, uh, you've probably heard the term. Some people adopt it as a sort of a name for hunters and things. Well, that's unfortunate because it's kind of a mistranslation here. Nimrod. It says Nimrod, and it says he began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter uh, before the Lord. That's the classical King James, which for since 1611 people understand. What Nimrod actually was, was a mighty one in defiance of the Lord. He was the first world dictator. He was a leader, a militant, mighty hunter of men. And he became the first, you know, despot, in a sense. Now, verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erach, and Akkad, and Kala, in the land of Shinar. Shinar is the region, a large plain. The word Shinar becomes a synonym, almost, for Babylon, or Babylonia, to be more precise. Babylon was a city, Shinar the general terrain, the plain of Shinar. And it goes on and talks a little, about, a little bit about Nimrod. Now this city that started Babel, when you get to chapter 11 of Genesis, has an incident occur. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech, chapter 11 informs us. Many, many scholars believe that that original language was, in effect, Hebrew, or the predecessor to Hebrew. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Come, let us make brick, and so forth. But burned them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, as we read this as children in Sunday school picture books, we probably get the idea, my, how naive they were, that they're going to build a tower to the sky. Don't knock it. We're, our government is spending a lot of money on gigantic telescopes whose principal interest is the communication with extraterrestrial intelligence. The concept of communicating with extraterrestrials is not confined to the flying saucer bunch. Uh, what this, what they're building here is a tower that was probably a combination of temple, of worship, of demon deities, and an astro astronomy, um, a planetarium. We get a glimpse of one of those, of a different design and purpose and function, at Stonehenge. 
thanks to Gerald Hawkins and other scholars, uh, we discovered Stonehenge, which was from the Bronze Age, had the ability to predict eclipses. It was, in effect, a combination shrine. Can you imagine the power of a priesthood at that time that could predict eclipses? And uh, the thing is accurate. To uh, make an error only once every 300 years, by the way, it's design. It's very interesting, too. The archaeologist tells us it was built in three stages, but abandoned after 300 years. Kind of interesting. But anyway, so we, we have only glimpses of this, what this is really, what's really going on. In any case, it is defiant. It is a one-world government move. It is a move that's based in idolatry. In verse 5, it describes how the Lord uh, observes all this. And says, Behold, the people are one, and they have all be, have one language, and this they began to do. Now nothing will be withheld from them that they have imagined to do. Come, let us go down. Notice the plural. You don't see that in the English very often. The word Elohim in Hebrew is plural. It's a plural noun used with singular verbs. So every time the word the name of God appears, it's a grammatical error. Except he's three and one, and so we understand that. But here anyway, he says, Come, let us go, go down. And... There confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And here we have the famous, you know, confusion of tongues, as it's called. Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The Roots Babel, later called Babylon. And that's with what we have to do tonight. Now, it's um, kind of interesting. You and I probably have a quaint view of these ancient city-states. Uh, let me, we're going to jump ahead now. We're not going to take a whole history of Babylon. I'll spare you all that. But we're going to pick up Babylon, uh, given our token beginning in Genesis. We're going to jump right into the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm not going to give you the whole history of that because I'm sure you've had enough of Nabonidus and all of that. We'll give you a little tonight, but I'd like you to strip away your perceptions of what you probably think this quaint, ancient city was looked like and start with a clean sheet of paper. And I want you to imagine this walled city that became the ruler of the known world. The only, th only thing that didn't come under their leadership was a few rather insignificant tribes in Europe that in that time were not that relevant. Babylon was the third of the great empires, Assyria, Egypt, and then Babylon. Now, Babylon's main city was 15 miles on a side, surrounded by a double wall. The wall was 350 feet high. And let me tell you, we'd have a tough time building something like that, too. That's high. It was 87 feet wide at the top. They used to have chariot races six abreast along the wall. Okay. Now, this is all according to Herodotus. I should be candid with you. Some scholars feel Herodotus was a little fanciful. But it's the best evidence we have. A lot of archaeological work done as recently as 1968 has confirmed the substance of a lot of what he said. There were 250 watchtowers along the wall. 
that were, some of them, extended 100 feet higher than the wall. Or, to be more precise, about 100, 420 feet high. That's big. That's high-rise, gang. In it, there was the Tower of Bell, as it's called. No, the name Bell is equivalent. It's the Arcadian name for Baal. Arcadia was the predecessors from the, to this time. Similar, it's a sun god thing with Zeus, Jupiter, and Osiris being other names of more recent years. Merodach, as the Bible, or Marduk, as the, as the inscriptions would say, uh, is the same name for Bel, a more recent name. Bel is the, the ancient name, but you'll find both. The name Bel occurs seven times in the Bible, interestingly enough. Twice in, in Jeremiah here, and then uh, about four times in Daniel. Now, in 1968, they uncovered a 197 foot by 164 foot court. That's pretty yard. That's, that's by today's standards, a large court that adjoins a throne room that's 165 feet long and 143 feet wide. And this may very well, we don't know, it may very well have been the place where Belshazzar had a thousand guests at a banquet and had a big blast that got a little exciting near the end as they looked up on the wall and saw a finger writing, putting in that cross stick, which according to Talmud was, well, that's a whole other thing. Um, well, so I guess I've started. In fact, maybe this is, yeah, this is worth mentioning because, as you know, Daniel, as a teenager, was deported by under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, first deportation to Babylon. Uh, Daniel goes through that whole career and interprets it. The young, the young king who inherits it. When his father dies, he ends up being, he's in charge. He puts his gang, his, his advisors to a test with the, the dream that he had in Daniel 2. Daniel comes forth and interprets, tells him what the dream was, which he didn't tell anybody, and interprets it for him, which impressed him. That puts Daniel in a position of some strength against this old guard of seers and advisors and what have you. And of course, his career is well described in, in, the, in the scripture, including Nebuchadnezzar's own uh, testimony in Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar uh, dies, and uh, has a, there's several successors, finally to Belshazzar. By this time, Daniel's getting to be an older man. Belshazzar is, in, uh, is, is totally arrogant and not concerned about his enemies. His Babylon has been under siege for 20 years at the time this takes place. Belshazzar knows they're invincible, throws a big party rather than worry about the Persians who have um, allied themselves with the Medes and the Elamites, and uh, they're going to be attacking. What does Belshazzar do? Throw a party. Huge blast. At the party... Turn to Daniel 5. They do several things, one of which, at least one of which, was not too cool. They dig out the temple vessels. When Nebuchadnezzar had the first deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon, he took the temple vessels, stored them in his museum. They found the museum. There's a place where he used to put trophies of his conquered tribes, and they were there. Belshazzar, as an act of arrogance, has them fetched and uses them in derogatory ways during the party, making a mockery of the God of the Jews. So what happens is that um, the—it's uh, kind of fun, so I'm just using this as an excuse to jump in here. 
or it follows me, Daniel 5. It, uh, I love this. Uh, in, uh, in verse 5, they drank wine, verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, of wood, and of stone. And I love that. Verse 5, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the lampstand upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. I love verse 6. You know, if you ever have any problem with the ad adequacy of the King James translation, verse 6 is one of my favorite. The king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against the other. <laughs> That's hard to improve upon, isn't it? So, and of course, he calls all his wise men in and so forth, and they have a hang-up. They can't figure out what it is that's being written on the wall. The old, It says in verse 10, the queen, which is probably the queen mother. This is the, the probably the wife of, Neb of uh, Nebuchadnezzar who's passed away, but she's still alive. And she, uh, by reason of the words of the king, she says, uh, there is a man in the kingdom. There used to be a man in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, in verse 11, meaning actually it was his grandfather, but that's all right. Um, in any case, uh, because of all of this, they, they summon Daniel and offer him um, Belshazzar, this up, you know, he's really shook up. He sees all this, doesn't know what's going on. He offers Daniel to be, uh, you know, a lot of stuff, gold and scarlet and all this good stuff. And if you just make known what this means. And then Daniel, verse 17, answered and said to the king, let thy gifts be to thyself. Once you get the atmosphere here, this, he's speaking to the king, saying, you know, you can shove it. He doesn't want any of that stuff. And give thy rewards to another, yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known unto him the interpretation. Um, you, if, if, when you've read the chapter, you'll notice they always greet the king, O king, live forever. That's sort of just an oriental title. Each of the people prior to this have said that. What's interesting, when you get to Daniel, he doesn't bother with that stuff. You notice it, especially if you read because there's, there's no O king. He says, he in effect is about to say, before he gives them the prophecy, Daniel has his say. Verse 18, O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father. He's going to, he's putting the king down by describing, he's in effect saying, now your granddad, there was a king. He says, he gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his earthly, his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. This is making reference to an episode in chapter 4. And he was driven from the sons of men and so forth. They fed him and until verse, uh, in the middle of the end of verse 2, until he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. That was the point of Nebuchadnezzar's experience that he himself, Nebuchadnezzar, documents in chapter 4, but that's bad. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all of this, but has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, Thou and thy lords, thy wives, thy concubines have drunk wine from them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, and which see not nor hear nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, thou hast not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written, and he's turning to the wall now. 
Now, according to the Talmud, if I had a chart here, I would write across the top P-T-M-M-R-Q-N-N-S-L. What you need to understand is in that the Aramaic and the Hebrew, they don't have vowels, just consonants. Later on, they put little codes above and below them to give you the what they call the pointing, the, the sound. It's a language with only consonants. You and I have a tough time relating to that. But that turns out to be very effective and, and, and it works. But they, this was written vertically and backwards, according to the Talmud. And that's why they had a you know, the scholars couldn't figure out what this all meant. This is the writing in verse 25 that was written, Many, many tekel euphorsin. Now, what you can't tell from the English translation is that euphorsin is the plural of peres. If you read the English here, it's confusing to you because here it says euphorsin, and a little bit later he's going to translate the, that last word peres. What you don't realize is that euphorsin, because you have no way of realizing, is a, is a plural of peres in the, in the, in the, in the language that's transliterated from. But he says, many, many tekel apsharsin. This is the interpretation. Many, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. The word many means numbered. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balance. The word means to weigh. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Right? You ever hear someone say your days are numbered? That cliche in our language comes from this chapter in the book of A. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Here is a pun. The word Perez means broken. See, numbered, weighed, and broken. That's what the word, that's the way we would say it. Numbered, your days are numbered. Weighed, you're weighed and found wanting. And broken, divisions. Except the word Perez, and it's it's euphorsin in the plural. If you pronounce if you put P-E-R-E-S, the equivalent of that. That means broken. P-A-R-A-S is a pun for Persians. So there's a pun involved here. On the one hand, you're broken and divided. Verse 20, perish, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's a prophecy. It's not. It's probably the most quickly fulfilled prophecy because it's happening that night. Okay, And I'll come back to that, too. That's the reason I'm going through some of this. And, of course, they uh, commanded Belshazzar to clothe Daniel with scarlet, but, of course, he had no real use for that stuff because Darius the Mede, Darius the Mede, verse 31, took the kingdom being about threescore and two years old, and it goes on. And, by the way, now the Medes and the Persians take over Babylon, and they now become the next world empire, and Daniel survives that transition. He ends up being the, you know, a key ruler of the kingdom of the Persians. He founds a sect that uh, keeps a secret. And that sect becomes, a, over many, many generations later, when certain signs that they were watching for happened, they traveled to Bethlehem. They're known as the Magi. And uh, that's a whole other thing. But uh, Daniel, interesting guy, fascinating book. I commend it to your reading. Now, we're going to come back to Cyrus and all that in a minute. But they have found, they believe, the room where all this happened. I want you to visualize that night. Belshazzar, arrogant, not sweating it, throwing a party instead of attending to his military defenses, didn't know that there was a guy by the name of Cyrus who was a Persian, even though Darius was under him as a Mede. There was part of the coalition. They were an allied group. Cyrus the Persian 
recognize if you if we were going to draw I, I don't use a view graph because it's too binding on the taste but you just have to use imagine if i was going to draw the map of babylon it would be roughly a rectangle and roughly down the not quite the middle a little to the left of the middle there's a river going through it if you take that rectangle and just bend it just a little bit counterclockwise you're close in other words river doesn't go quite north south it goes a little starts a little west of north and exits a little east of south through the rectangle and that rectangle is roughly 15 miles on a side. That's Babylon. When the river, just before it enters the city, it's diverted in part to make a moat around the city, and then there's a second wall around the city. So the city is double-walled with a moat between it, the moat being fed by the river. Cyrus was a pretty shrewd militarist. If you've studied the Romans, which came after the Greeks, which came after Cyrus, you realize that Rome, the entire Roman Empire, was built essentially on army engineering. Those guys were knew how to do it. Cyrus began that sort of, well, I'm not sure he was the first to do it, but he certainly was skilled at what you might call military engineering. He had three divisions. He sent uh, one of them, I think one of them or two of them, anyway, sent some of his forces upriver out of sight to build a dam. And he had it timed so that when they stopped the river and the river dried up, his other divisions entered the city on dry land where there was a river. And that's how they took Babylon. Okay? They were, uh, uh, so that's how Cyrus conquered Babylon. When they did, now you realize, of course, Daniel was at the court of Babylon. Daniel's concern and passion was for Judah, who were slaves, almost 70 years. That's what, in Daniel chapter 9, gives rise to his prayer in the Daniel 70 prophecy. He knew that they were only supposed to be there 70 years, 67 or something had gone by. Now the Persians take over. You know what Daniel does? He's got access to the throne. According to Josephus, plus just the logic of it, Daniel goes to see Cyrus. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.